I, I don't want to go further on our sermon without bringing some attention to our Bible conference last week, to our Equip conference last week for the Seven Arrows Bible Method and for Matt Rogers' ministry with us here. And I've heard that several people have begun to use the Seven Arrows Method in your Bible study. Um, and so I want to just ask you really quickly, um, can anyone give me a comment about how they've, about they're using it and that they've enjoyed it or that they've just, can anyone give me a comment real quick that you're using it and what you're thinking of it, how it's helped you at all? Someone? Someone, anyone, anyone? I see that hand. There's not a hand, but I'll just, people are supposed to say that. We go, here, yes, it's my wife. She's pulling me off the hook. Thank you, the rest of the church. I appreciate you. Um, yeah, Betty? Yeah, great, right, yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Oh, Bud? So it really, it really helped get other people involved in the discussion. Exactly right, good. Anybody else? Yeah, Judy? You felt like you were seeing it with new eyes because of using the tool. That's great. That's really good. That's great. Great. Anyone else? Last call. Anyone else? Anyone else? All right. All right. So uh, I know that, you know, um, Betty Jo, she made a poster. You know, she's a teacher. And so she made a poster with all the cheat notes on it for each arrow, you know. And uh, you can get that. There's an app, an iOS app that you can download. For you Android people, I'm not sure. You're out there on your own. Um, but um, you, there's an app that has all of that in it as well. You can use it for your Bible study. And then I told you last week that, we, that you can get the bookmark with the arrows and the basic question on it. It's over here at the resource table. And if you ordered a book, your book is at the resource table as well. Um, and then also, in my um, Afterthoughts email this week, I sent you a link into the devotional book. Um, it says it's for teens. I kind of liked it. I'm using it a little bit. And, um, and then as well as the study Bible that's coming out next month, I believe. So all that was in the Afterthoughts email that I sent out later this week. And I appreciate you guys giving a little bit of feedback on it. And if you're using it, let me know. I'd love to hear more about how it's working out for you and your time. All right? So we're talking about to be and make disciples for Christ. You know, that is what, we're, it's what our mission statement is, to be and make committed followers of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about equip, you know, and we talked about serve. And last week's Bible conference, equipping conference, that was about equipping as well. And then today, we're focusing on serve. I already said that. Today, our our focus is on serve. So open up your Bibles to John 13, please. Um, And in John 13 is the place where Jesus talks about serving. It's the place where he talks about his example. And as you're getting over there... um, I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to pull a fast one on you today. Find your place in John 13. It's the first few verses that we're going to be referring to, but I'm not going to read it from a translation probably any of you are using. I'm going to be reading it from the JB Phillips translation. And the reason why again I do that is because I'm going to because when I read it from that translation, you're going to say, "Oh, it doesn't say that." Are you going to say, "Oh, that's interesting. It says it like that." So I'm using it for the freshness of the language, because so many of us are familiar with it. So you can read along, and then if you come up to me afterwards and say, I couldn't follow along, well, that's why, all right? Just letting you know that, all right? So here we are, Um, John 13. Before the festival of the Passover began, Jesus realized that his time had come for him to leave this world and to return to the Father. He had loved those who were in his own, who were his own, own in this world, and he loved them to the end. By supper time, the devil had already put the thought of betraying Jesus in the mind of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Jesus, with full knowledge that the Father had put everything into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, 
rose from the supper table, took off his outer clothes, picked up a towel and fastened it around his waist. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel around his waist. Let's think through the story a little bit. Matthew, I mean, in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, it tells us that the Lord had sent two of the disciples ahead into Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover festival. And his instructions to them was, go into the city, and you're going to meet a man carrying a pitcher of water, and follow that man to wherever he goes, and that is the place where we will observe the Passover. And when you arrive, prepare the room for all of us to join you. So we have to assume that the necessary preparations have been made. But as the story unfolds, it appears that one aspect of the preparation had been overlooked. The, the practice of foot washing was a hospitality custom throughout ancient civilizations, especially where sandals were the normal footwear. And the host would provide water. He would also provide a slave or a servant to perform the service of washing feet. It appears in the text that there was no water and no slave to clean the disciples' feet. Now, the text doesn't give us the background to what had happened prior to Christ getting up and beginning to perform this service. So let's just imagine a little bit how it might have happened. So the room has been prepared. I'm assuming that means that there's a table. You know, it's a low standing table typically. And it's shaped in a U with cushions around it. And, and, and the men literally do somewhat lie about that table. Now, this one here is not, um, I should have thought that through a little better, huh? This one here would not be typical of a table at that time. That's somebody's rendition of it. Um, and so the table would have been set up. I'm assuming that the food was there too, right? Because we have no mention that the food was missing or anything. And so the first disciple comes to the room when it's coming time to arrive. He comes into the room. There's no one there to wash feet. He observes that. And then he looks around the room and he thinks to himself, the Lord would probably sit right over here. So I'm going to sit right next to him. And the next disciple comes in. He observes that there's no one there either to wash feet. And he looks around the room and there's already one guy sitting there. And he does the same thing. Where would Jesus sit? And then he chooses a seat as close as possible to where he thinks the Lord was set. This happens ten more times as each of the disciples come in. And somewhere in the mix of all that, Jesus comes in and he takes a seat. And, and now we have a scenario where there are the twelve disciples sitting around the room, all of them with dirty feet, and the Lord is there amidst them. And it had to be somewhat of a question mark in their mind. It had to be somewhat of the maybe perhaps as I say, the elephant in the room, that all of them were there, sitting there with their feet still soiled and dirty, and they're waiting to start the Passover meal, but there's something that's undone. There's something that still needs to happen before they can start. And there's not a slave in the room to do it. And so Jesus gets up. And as the text says, he takes off his outer garments and he picks up a towel and he takes a basin and fills it with water and he begins to go to each of the disciples. 
and wash their feet. There's this one other part of the story that the gospel of Mark records that gives us a little bit of insight into why I would characterize that interaction the way I did. The story tells that they were on their way, that they had arrived in Capernaum, and they'd come into the house after a day of travel and ministry, and the Lord asked them, what were you guys discussing back on the road? What was that about? And Mark 9 records the story and tells us this, but they kept silent. That you think about this, right? And we've probably all done this one time or another. It's kind of like when you're talking about something and you're talking about someone maybe and then they walk in the room and then silence happens in the room and the question begs to be asked, what were you talking about? Because the answer you sense is you were talking about me, right? But in this case... He says, what were you talking about? And they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. And sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, if any one of you wants to be first, he shall be the last of all and servant of all. Mark 9 gives our story in John 13 a little bit more of color. It gives it some backdrop. It gives us a little bit of an understanding what was happening there. None of themselves, none of them saw themselves as a slave. None of them thought that they should have to stoop to wash the other's feet. And you think about this. You think about this. If they had just been talking among themselves about who was the greatest, and now they're in a situation where one of them has to be the servant to all of them, who wants to be that man? Because they'd been all thinking about who's the greatest. Well, the greatest one of them would never be the one to stoop down and wash feet. Not in their mind anyway, right? And so they sat there, waiting, willing apparently to even go through the Passover meal dirty, uncleaned, because none of them was a slave. And then the most stunning thing happens. The Lord, the rabbi, the one that all of them want to be like, the one that they wanted to sit around, the one that they've talked about in their discussions. And and even the mother of John and James has gotten involved and says, well, can one sit on the right and one sit on the left? Because you are the man. We know that. We understand that. We don't really know who you are. We don't really know what you're about, but we know you're really important. And we want to be around you. We want to be a part of you. We want to be associated with you. So can... We sit on either side of you. So here we are. This man, the one that they've all been talking about, this one gets up and starts washing their feet. The teacher, the rabbi. So there in John 13, as you continue to look through the passage, he says this to them, beginning in verse 17, beginning verse 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to watch, wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, 
I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one that is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of of Discipline, he says, no one wanted to be considered the least. Then Jesus took out a towel and basin and he redefined greatness. Isn't that a great statement? He redefined statement. Another commentator, in talking about Philippians 2, 6 through 11, where Philippians 2 talks about that he left glory, he set aside glory, and he came and he took the form of a slave, even to the point of death. And one commentator has said it this way, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who precisely because he was in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God to be grounds for grasping, but poured himself out, taking the very nature of a servant. Do you get that? Because he was God, he became a servant. That night in the upper room, he didn't get up and wash feet because no one else did it. He got up and did it because he was a servant and no one else was. He got up and did it because that's who he was. So, being God did not stop him from serving. It compelled him. It was the natural thing to do. A bird flies. A fish swims. Our God serves. And those who call themselves his disciple, must serve as well. We must follow his example. We must do as he has done to us. A servant is one that meets needs. And Jesus was using the foot washing as a physical example of why he was sent here. He came to meet the spiritual needs of mankind. He came to meet our need for a Savior, to provide a solution to our sin problem. He has never, ever washed my feet, but he washed my sinful heart with his own blood. He has served each and every one of us. The verse that we take equip, sin, and serve from highlights that service. Ephesians 4.12, you don't have to go there, but Ephesians 4.12 talks about that that there are gifts given to pastors and other ministers for the equipping of the saints. What for? For the equipping of the saints for works of service. To what? To build up the body of Christ. Equipping for service so that we can build up the body of Christ. Paul describes himself as a servant of God, often in his letters. Think about this. Here is Paul. Um, He has written most of the New Testament. If he were to walk in this room, I would quickly sit down. And most of us would because of the stature of his teaching, of his walk, of his understanding And yet here he is, he does not speak of himself as being the greatest disciple. He does not speak of himself as being, hey, I'm writing a lot of the New Testament that you guys are going to read one day. Pay attention. He says, I am the slave 
of the Lord. I am the servant of the Lord. Read the letters he writes. And most of his letters, somewhere in there, if it's not in the first few verses, it's in the text somewhere that he says, I am the servant of God. And in, in, and in Colossians 1.29, he describes his service to God this way. And to this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. The text is essentially saying, I struggle to exhaustion to serve well. Being a servant is hard work. There are a few characteristics that we can highlight. Number one, most acts of service are not readily seen by others. Now, in our day and time, when everyone's doing this on TV, like, look at me, look at my team, look at my number, pay attention to me, they say, that's not going to happen for most of us. Who set up your chair today that you're sitting in? Who prepared your coffee today that you drank? Who brought the desserts today that you ate? Who's wiping the bottoms of your babies downstairs? Who's teaching your children downstairs? Who produced the bulletin you're reading today? Who's running the sound? He's not sitting there, so you can't look and find out. Who's running the sound today? Who's making sure the slides are right today? Most of those things are done in such a way that they don't get their name in the bulletin. Most of us, unless we, put, we deposited a child downstairs, we don't know who's downstairs. So they serve, for the large part, without any recognition or without anyone ever knowing. Who's teaching your kids on Friday night in youth ministry? So on and so forth. So many things that happen here, there are very few of us who ever get up front that you know who we are. The church rides on the back of all of those that no one knows who they are. And we come together because of that. Matter of fact, let's even take it a step further. Today we're sitting in this room, and thank God we're sitting in a room that's heated because people give. It's an act of service, and no one knows what they give. No one gets called out because they give more than another. No one gets recognized because they give more than another. No one gets a plaque. You gave the most in 2018. Congratulations. See if you can do better next year. It doesn't happen. Service is largely unseen, unrecognized. Because we don't serve in, we don't serve in such a way that we want to be recognized. Because there is nothing I'm going to give you in this life that's really going to be of any value. Because the thing that you're serving for, the thing that you're going to get that is of great value, is eternal, untarnished, unblemished, coming in the next life. And so when you set up the chairs this morning, whoever you were, you did a fine job. We appreciate that. That's all you're getting from us because in the next life you're getting so much better. Thank you for the coffee. The coffee in the next life is going to be a lot better and you won't have to fix it, whoever did that. And I love the brownies today. They're my favorite. Thank you very much. And the next life, there's a feast that will be unparalleled. And your brownies will be a small thing compared to what you're going to get in the next life. And it goes on and on and on. In the faith, in the church family, we serve not for recognition here. We serve because that's what we're called to. Richard Foster, he goes on further and he says that we're banished to the mundane, the ordinary, and the trivial. If the Lord himself, our master, chose to wash feet, chose to take on the task of a slave and did not think anything about it, 
then so should we. Number, next one. A servant doesn't have the option to accept or decline service duties. Think about that. We serve those that God places in our life in ways that are costly to us. It will cost us our time, our money, our passion, our comfort, our preferences, our choices, because we don't get to choose. The servant does what the master bids him. We need to realize that a servant doesn't have the kind of rights that says, Hi, I'd like to check in with you today and find out which jobs I'd like to do and which jobs I wouldn't. We don't have that. And yet it is not uncharacteristic for the church. And I say that in the more universal way. To make decisions all the time that says, we don't want to serve there. We don't want those people here. There were churches at the cresting of the AIDS epidemic when there were AIDS children children who were in orphanages or children's homes who had AIDS and local churches were saying, we don't want you to bring them here. May God forgive us. Now then, that was a few years ago. Just think to yourself, who is the church saying now, we don't want you here? I always worry. It's so easy now to look back and say, wow, that was a big mistake. I always worry. What is it that we will look back on next year, 10 years, and say, what were we thinking? Wow. What were we thinking? We don't get to choose who we serve. The Lord puts those people in our lives for a reason, and we talk about that. We talk about that people are in our life for a reason. God puts them there, and it is our job to serve them, whether we like them or not. And really, sometimes it's whether they like us or not. It is our job to serve them. And always remember, always remember, that in While we were yet sinners, he died for us. The pastor says that long before you thought you liked him, long before you thought that he was a good idea to your life, he had already shed his blood to pay for your sins. And that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He is our master and our example, and we should be like him. Servants don't get to serve when it's convenient or easier when we want to. We, you know, when, when the need presents itself, that's when the need needs to be met, does it not? When we don't have enough money, maybe, that's when the need needs to be met. When we feel like serving is going to cost us all we have, that's when we serve. When we don't have much time left and serving takes all the time we have left, That's when we serve. When we are exhausted and tired and worn out and just downright done, that's when we serve. Several years ago, I had some people who were talking to me about some messages that we had been in 
And they said, there's nothing wrong with having a little me time. I just got to point out something to you right now. You won't find those people in this room. You won't find them, those people in any church because they're enjoying me time. When you self-indulge, you will self-indulge yourself right out those doors to your couch, to your golf course, to whatever you want permanently. I know, I know, I know we can have a great discussion about self-care because that's a big deal these days. But me time is only, is always takes away from serving God. When you look at Paul and he says, these are all the things I suffered. Do you think at any time when he was talking about those things that he says, you know what, I've had a bad year. You know, that time I spent on shipwrecked on the island, I think I'm going to take a few weeks off here and I'm just going to crash over here and I'm not going to like, you know, don't talk to me. I've had a bad year. I need some me time. He didn't do that. Because another one of our points is, and I'm probably going to mess up my order of this now, but we're going to go with that. It's that because the thing is, it's that when we are the weakest is when he is strong. And so when we think we need me time the most might be the time that he wants us to serve one more time to demonstrate that he is strong when we think we have nothing left. He still uses us. Me time will burn, but service is eternal. Finally, service has benefits to it. Ephesians 4 says that it's ser- service builds up the local church. There are so many ways that you can use your gifts and service at Crossing. In, in a couple of weeks, our Sunday morning service is for the most part going to be a ministry fair. Where we're going to ask all of our ministries to have a table there. We're inviting our ministry partners to come in and have a table. And so you can look around and say, How, is there a new opportunity for me to consider to serve? That's going to happen in two weeks. And so you'll get to hear about some ways to serve. There is, you know, it's, and it's not an issue that we don't always have money for service. Very often it's an issue we don't have people for service. So, you know, we are growing in ministries, and there are ministries such as our young family small group or our mom small group, and the things they need most is child care. It's child care. Someone to sit with the little ones. Someone to be down there and do ministry with them, do crafts with them, wipe their bottoms, whatever it is. Keep them from playing with the plugs. All that kind of stuff, you know? It's, that's what we need people... And you know what that is? That's exactly what Jenna did. She went and did something that really... There are millions of people who can teach children. But there's only a few people who want to go to Cameroon and do it so the Baca people can learn about Christ. And so we've had this discussion as a church before. Who is there that could possibly come here for two hours on every other Tuesday morning so that women can hear about Jesus upstairs here? They can build relationships that have the gospel embedded in them. Who is it that's available for that? Are we all too self-important to be with children? Because that's a ministry that needs people to step into it. And the same thing is true for um, the young people, the young family small group. It's the same thing is true in so many ways. We have people who say to us, well, I would love to do, I would love to come to your your church orientation class, but you guys don't have child care. You know why we don't have child care? It's because we, we spend hours on the phone going, can you, can you, can you, can you? And 
it's hard to find people to do it. So we don't. That's just one area of service that is really, really needed. So be on the lookout. There's another thing we're going to bring up that people are really needing, and I think that it's a great need in our church, and we've kind of talked about it, and that's that we want to do like a match.com. You know what that is, right? Everyone knows what that is anymore. We want to, all the single people looked up one. what? Um, We want to do a match.com, but it's not for relationships that are for marriage or dating. We want to do like a match.com for an older Christian who wants to mentor a younger Christian. And so there's some of you in here that have a lot of Christian years under your belt that need that you could use that to just spend a few hours once in a while with someone who is a younger Christian and could spend a little time with them, just answering questions, reading the Bible with them, praying with them, talking about their life circumstances. We're going to be putting that out there at the ministry fair also. But there are other ways that the service builds up the local church also. Um, it... The, Service is a platform for the gospel. Now, stay with me on this. I was mentoring a young man uh, several years ago, and he was really uncertain about this thing about faith. He was really uncertain, like, whether he thought he believed this or not. But he was really diligent in, like, hanging out and being willing to listen and figure this out. Do you know what the tipping point was for him? It was coming to a work day. Because he came back later on, Monday, on Sunday night or Monday morning. He said to me, I watched all those people work and the way they worked together and the way they were, and I decided that I wanted to be a part of that. See, work days are not about raking leaves all the time. Work days are about the people who are coming and raking leaves with you. I'm just saying, it's important. And not only that, but we typically have Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts here with us working on a, on a work day. And to have those people out there raking leaves with us or cleaning the playground with us, that's what they do. They come to kind of pay back and appreciation for being on the campus. And for them to come and then and to be around us, watching us. And like going, those people kind of like, like they... They act like they like each other. I don't, I don't have that feeling at my church. wonder if there's something I should investigate. And not only that, but when they're out there working, you know, for us to come alongside and say, I want to be a part of that team, Tim, because I want to build a relationship with them. That's what we talked about a few weeks ago, intentionally being around others for the sake of the relationship and the gospel. That's what, where service is a demonstration of the gospel. And finally, we don't serve because someone needs us. We serve because we need others. Now, that's the whole thing that we get backwards all the time. And you'll even, I mean, I probably even said it in this service just now, probably. But we often think that people need us. I cannot tell you how many times I've gone to a hospital room thinking I need to be there for them and I've walked out like going, that was really remarkable because I came away myself humbled, blessed, encouraged. Service is something that we need. 
In pouring ourselves out, we find out what God's purposes and plans and his, per- his pleasure in our service. We found out that we see and we experience the true spirit and the nature of the master. The great servant, we, ex- we, we understand him better when we're serving. And so it's almost like, if I want to know Jesus better, I want to go around and say, what can I do for you? 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 Because I want to know Jesus. Not because I like you. <laughs> not, not because I care what your needs are. I want to know Jesus. Give me a chance to know him. But I do like you. Don't worry. We're good. You know what I mean? It's like there's, there's this other motive built into it that I know Jesus because I serve others. Because I, I sense his hand of pleasure when I poured myself out. When I've given you my last $5, when I've given you my last 10 minutes, when I've given up my Sunday afternoon nap, whatever it may be, when I've given that to you, you know, you begin to think, that's what God's about. The reward and the joy of service cannot be matched by a Netflix binge or mastering the next level of your game console or getting, you know, bringing down your handicap or making another daughter. Bill W., the founder of AA, said it like this. He said, he could help because he was weak. And in helping, he found that he got stronger. Do you catch that? That he, he, he walked away with something as he helped someone else. And it's in our weakness that we experience the power and the purpose of God. And we don't get those same kind of God experiences when we're not serving or expecting or we're waiting to be served. Those disciples... Think about this. This is one of those kind of conundrums a little bit theologically. Those disciples, if one of them had actually gotten up and washed their feet that day, you know, the Lord wouldn't have said what he did and did what he did there that night. Now, I'm sure he would have done it someplace else. But like, we know God better and differently because we serve him in those ways. Consider this church. Paul wrote of Jesus in Colossians 1, Um, beginning in verse 15 and forward. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, where the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have the first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell on him. And the way that he wanted his followers to be known, the example he set, the form that he took to come and dwell on earth was the form of, of a servant. Every king that has ever served has come in pomp and circumstance with red carpets and bands. Every time our president gets out of that plane in another country, there is a band there to welcome him. And Jesus came as a servant and a slave and served us instead. He was the creator of the universe. And in him all things are held together. And in him all things are created by him and for him. And he came in the form of a slave. And he served. And he wants that 
for his followers as well. He is the master of the universe and he is equally the master of the mundane and the servant of all. And he came not to be served, but to serve. And now, we who call ourselves Christians, we who say that he is our master, we who say that I'm a disciple of his, have to ask ourselves, do we serve the way he does? Do we serve the way our master does? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we just thank you very much um, for this, like, to me, it's just mind-blowing that the God of all creation would take the form of man and not only take the form of man, because I would think he would take the form of a king among men, but he took the form of a slave among all men. We thank you, wow, for your example. And then we thank you that you put your spirit in us that enables us and helps us to follow your example. Form us, form in us, Father, that mentality of a servant and a slave that we serve others. And in doing so, we speak of you in our acts as well as in our words. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.